Hello and welcome to my digital talk. Uh, today the topic is the future starts now and my guest is Bronwyn Williams who is a futurist, economist and business trends analyst. Um, she's a partner at Flux Trends and she has co-authored a really amazing book I would like to discuss with her today and I would also like to dedicate this digital talk on the future, the dark and the light side of it. So I would like to start first with a question regarding the book, The Future Starts Now. What made you write your contribution? You have written a contribution in defense of imperfect information. And uh, in addition to it, what is actually the most desired future scenario in your personal view, respectively the worst case future scenario in your view? Yes, so my chapter was uh, one of the first sort of conversations that we thought of when we put the book together. And the purpose of the book, just to give people a little bit of background there, was put together with myself and another feature is called Theo Priestley, he's based in Edinburgh. And we were quite disappointed around discourse around the future which seemed to be doing exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. It seemed to be narrowing down on inevitable sort of scenarios and situations given to us by political leaders, by business leaders, or even by celebrities, rather than opening up the future into a much wider spectrum where a lot more different perspectives are at least contemplated and on the table. So we wanted to counter that narrative of inevitability. So I'll answer your second question first there. And for me, the most depressing thing that could happen is if our future as a global entity as humanity at large ends up becoming homogenous, ends up becoming a one world view, one world system of governance, one world system of ethics and values and economics and monetary systems. I think that freedom is reflected in choice and that when we take choice off the table, we end up in much more depressing situations than when we have more choices available to us. With that sort of way of thinking, my chapter was about in defense of imperfect information. It was really a bit of a resistance against this homogenization of the future, attacking it really from what's going on in the world of artificial intelligence and big data and how increasingly so much in our lives, whether we work for an organization or whether we're talking about how we relate to our states and our governments, are being automated. And as soon as you start talking about automation, you start talking about one-size-fits-all solutions being applied, about treating groups as groups rather than individuals, which is great if you sit in the middle of a bell curve. It's not particularly wonderful if you're on either end. We know this from the way that we are treated at school systems. If you're particularly clever as a child or if you're particularly slow as a child in the classroom, you end up being left behind or being squashed and stomped upon in order to sort of focus on the middle of the curve. And that whole thing of trying to fit everyone through a narrower and narrower funnel, through a more and more particular lens, through the same sort of metrics. Computer says no, computer says yes, computer says you guys win, computer says you guys lose. Is for me something we should be resisting because I don't believe that that sort of utilitarian ethics is great for humanity at large. I do believe that we are still individuals and that we are still essentially animals. We want flesh and blood beings. And as such, we can't be automated entirely without losing the essence of what we are. 
And that goes very quickly into quite philosophical territory, which if you're interested in, you can pick up more on the, the work of Tracy Follows, who is another futurist based in the UK who speaks quite a lot about this, the ethics of personal identity in a very data-driven world. But I won't talk too much about that tonight. I think it's also quite interesting to look at what happens in a perfectly automated world where there are no secrets, where there are no secrets between states and citizens. There are no secrets between one nation and another. There are no secrets between customers and organizations or between one organization and another, which is what really happens in a fully automated economy. From a very practical, very sort of capitalistic way of looking at the world, what that perfectly automated marketplace does sucks all the value, both in the literal and a figurative sense, out of the marketplace. A perfect, perfect economy is an economy without any profit margin, because that's where any margin is, any value is found in imperfect human relationships and what we determine has value in our societies. So it really becomes a question of values and, va and value very, very quickly. And that was the sort of conversation that I wanted to open up. The purpose of our book was not to close the conversation, but to open it so that people could start to disagree with us and start to debate these ideas and see what the logical conclusion of the most probable trajectory, whether we're looking at something like data and information, whether we're looking at privacy, whether we're looking at genetic engineering, whether we're looking at the future of warfare, whatever it might be, to have a look at what the probable trajectory is and then get people to question if they like that. And if not, hopefully take some action, however small it might be, to nudge the course of that probable future away from inevitability and towards perhaps a better solution or at least to offer a range of choice. Okay, thank you very much for elaborating on your contribution uh, um, in defense of imperfect uh, information. Uh, however, I would like also to uh, expand the topic a little bit more because uh, the book consists of uh, various scenes that uh, actually outline uh, different uh, perspectives of, um, of our future based on technology, uh, society, economics, and so on. And, uh, Derive from it, what is your anticipation for the future? Is the 21st century the final century, or are we going to witness a century that uh, will um, more or less uh, be the most developed one, um, towards moving towards uh, singular, singularity? What, what is your um, so? This is the second part. This was the second part of my question, of course, about your anticipation um, of the future? Yeah, of course, nothing is inevitable, nothing is set in stone, but I think that my general view over the, the rest of the century would be that we're in for one of quite some catastrophic change and, and catastrophe can be end up being a good thing in the, in the long run or it can be a very, very devastating thing. I think that the period we've seen over the last two years can be seen as an, almost a preview as to what is still to come. There were a lot of seeds of destruction, a lot of trends that have been set in motion over the last 30 years that have to resolve one way or another. And we've got two sort of choices as humanity at large. I'm talking, talking very globally at the moment. We can either deal with those problems right now and fix them and move on. And then we can look forward to a very progressive rest of the century. But that does require some form of pain in the short term. The other alternative is for us to postpone those big challenges 
in which case we're going to end up with much more devastating, much more catastrophic challenges that we're going to have to deal with further on. And, there, and I can sort of speak very loosely about those challenges. The one would be, of course, the debt situation that's going on. Again, literally and figuratively, we can talk about debt, about borrowing too much from the future to preference today. And so sooner or later, that debt has to be paid back. So whether you're talking about debt in terms of what's going on with the climates and natural resources that we've overextended our endowment for our generation for our present day that has to be paid back at some time with some sort of reduction in consumption for future generations as we develop new technologies and hopefully be able to progress beyond that if we decide to ignore that that means our children and grandchildren are going to struggle they might actually face unfortunately a degrowth future which is not something that i find aspirational at all i think that's a something we should be avoiding and also very, very significantly financial debt. We think we can get away with the fact that we've got a, a planet that's got more debt than we have value. We have to understand that's not real value that we're talking about. Those are made up numbers. And sooner or later, that debt has to be reckoned with because we have limited finite resources on our planet. As much as we inflate our monetary policy, doesn't actually increase real value. And as soon as that difference between real value and the value that we sort of made up and we convinced ourselves to believe in, when it becomes too big a gap to actually believe in, those houses of cards can collapse quite quickly. So I do think there's an economic reckoning coming and an environmental reckoning that we're going to have to deal with in terms of real scarcity again and coming back to sort of think about those things rather than artificial abundance that we've become quite accustomed to. And the other thing we're going to have to grapple with is what's going on with inequality, which is largely driven by the artificial manipulation that I've spoken about in terms of the real versus financialized marketplace. But inequality does end up causing social instability and the, the further we let that run away with us the more devastating a reckoning is going to come from a socio-political point of view so we have to deal with those things i think that we can get away with kicking that can down to the next generation i'm a sort of millennial if you want to use those sorts of terms i think we could we could conceivably push those problems down the road for 10 to 20 years max but the further we kick it down the road the, the bigger the dip is going to come. And that's, I suppose, the big challenge for anyone listening today, that human progress over the course of humanity has generally been, as they say, up and to the right. You know, things have got generally better for most people. It's generally better to be born today than it was to be born 30 years ago if you want access to opportunity regardless of where you end up being born generally our lifespans have improved generally prosperity has increased generally poverty has trended down generally education has tended up with a few bumps along the way but that trajectory although it is something that i believe is possible it's not inevitable if we are sort of ungrateful for our current bounty and for our birthrights and for all those wonderful opportunities we have as our particular generation at this point in time. And if we don't continue investing in growth, that growth won't happen automatically. It only happens if we choose to progress up and to the right. And I suppose I'm a little bit concerned that my generation in particular has become a bit too complacent. It might not be invested in building society that might be more cons concerned with perhaps extracting value from society. And that is quite disturbing for me as a parent of small children. If I didn't have children, I probably would feel that it would be okay because we can sort of continue along and we can overshoot our, our endowments for a little bit longer. So that would be my sort of broad view over the, the, the course of the, the next century. Mm -hmm. 
um, and derive from this uh, this uh, this overlook um, uh, overview, uh, what would you uh, what would be your let's say maybe three to five main macro socioeconomic uh, um, trends that we should uh, well keep an eye on or would give us more information about the direction in which we are moving uh, post COVID-19. And let me just um, add to it that uh, there are now two specific trends uh, that somehow, you know, were enforced by the pandemic. On the one side, uh, the so-called uh, global uh, regulation uh, bodies. So we are now observing increasingly uh, that uh, international organizations, institutions are also placing their ideas and trying to actually use multilateral structures and mechanisms to, uh, well, have an impact on uh, global uh, solutions. But on the other side, there is also a very strong trend towards localism, uh, bottom-up uh, movements and uh, societal um, societal impact. So how do you see this kind of uh, also trend um, influencing international relations? Because more or less global affairs have, are still very much based on, um, well, on the relations between uh, states and uh, you know, adding this layer of international organizations. I don't need to give you examples. We've seen a lot <laughs> in the last two years. And then again, coupled with uh, you know this kind of bottom-up uh, pushback uh, by societies, uh, uh, specifically when it comes to the um, ambiguous role of uh, big tech or other corporations, but also inadequate responses by governments. So how does this fit into the, into the global picture of post-COVID? Yeah, so to start looking at those trends, I think the first thing to note is that for every action there is there's an opposite reaction. So trends tend to have counter trends. And as you were saying right there, what I sort of termed the beginning of this year, how I sort of themed the year would be the, the conflict between centralization and decentralization. And there's sort of sub trends that we can pick into there. But I think the biggest thing we're going to see in the short term, and it's almost inevitable right now, I think it's not something that's speculation, it's something that's happening, is the roll up of power towards the state. We're talking about a massive swing back to big government. This is happening globally. Obviously, some marketplaces are doing it more extremely than other ones. But in terms of big government, I'm talking about a roll up in terms of powers, in terms of erosions of both civil liberties and economic liberties. We're seeing vast increases into the sort of restrictions on freedom of speech, freedom of movement, not just due to COVID, but I think COVID has accelerated quite a lot of those things. I'm talking about things like censorship of speech online that we're seeing a lot more of right now. We also see things like government literally getting bigger in terms of the way they're inflating their, their balance sheets in terms of the money that's being printed. That gives that government more power. Whether you're talking about increasing taxation, that's also a trend that we're seeing across the world. We're also seeing increases in things like signage, which of course is sort of backdoor taxation. So we're seeing governments accruing more wealth and more power. So center of gravity on a practical level is pulling towards the state. But at the same time, there's this counter trend that's going on with the using technology in particular, where individuals are decentralizing without permission. So you've got an official centralization of power and money, but you've also got an unofficial, unregulated 
borderless technological world that's growing up of people taking control and power of both power and money back into their own hands quite often outside of the control of those states are at the same time trying to consolidate their power base so it's a very unstable situation because the one feeds against the other the more a state tries to you know increase taxation levels increase its power over the individual the more incentive that individual has to try and escape that system by using what's going on i mean we all know about what's going on with private borderless currencies what's going on with the cryptocurrencies at the moment how many more people are involved in South Africa, we've got quite a weak state that at the same time is trying to expropriate without compensation and reduce property rights, which is just increasing the adoption of these other systems, which in turn sort of break down the control of that state and, and incentivize that state to try and become more strong arming over their populations too. This is, these are very destabilizing forces that we're seeing there and they're very, they, they polar opposite. I still think that, that states have more control than individuals. I think that these sort of borderless systems got rich before they got powerful. Quite a similar situation to what happened in China where China got old before it got quite, quite powerful enough. If I, if I was China, I would hope to have accrued a bit more power before my population started start aging. I think this is sort of a little bit of a parallel that we can look at there, but definitely those trends between decentralization of the individual trying to get more self-sovereignty at the same time, states making very big moves to become bigger and to reduce the sort of sovereignty of individual citizens is definitely a big trend to look at over there. Again, I mentioned inequality, which is worth looking at. So when I'm talking about inequality, we can look at what happened with like with what's going on with like the World Economic Forum's marketing thing, where they had that all whole like, you know, you're, you'll own nothing, but you'll be happy. The sort of flip side of that is that ownership is getting concentrated into fewer hands. Again, this is parallel to that big trend I was talking about, about states getting bigger, because states are taking bigger stakes in the physical economy because there's a growing realization that real power comes from control over the real world not just over financial monopoly money because that as i said doesn't necessarily have real value in a world where debt is growing and growing so we're seeing a consolidation of control over real assets into fewer and fewer hands so when i talk about inequality i'm not just talking about income inequality which people usually get quite upset about that's not the real inequality here i'm talking about inequality of control over real scarce resources. And that sort of concentration is happening both in the public and in the private sector. We've seen over the last year how much richer the world's richest individuals have got. And what's been interesting to watch from a trained and signal signpost point of view is how those very, very rich gentlemen across the world, they do tend to be gentlemen, don't they, have started buying real assets rather than just investing purely in hypothetical stock market value, which is where most of their wealth has been held up until to date. The sort of the news that broke last year with the amount of farmland that Bill Gates uses, for example, is quite a strong signal that ownership of scarce real assets is being concentrated. There was also another signal that sort of ticked that same box and the sort of signals I'm trying to connect was, was the Bloomberg article that came out that's saying encouraging Americans to become renters instead of owners of property for their own good, saying you can be more happy as a renter with more freedom but with less control. And I think that's quite concerning, particularly for me in a country like South Africa where our property rights are under a bit of question at the moment because property rights and having a stake in your own nation, in your own land, on your own earth is quite important from a sort of democracy point of view and a ability for citizens to call states to account, particularly as they are becoming bigger and more powerful. So looking at that sort of balance of power between the individual and the corporation or the individual and the state is definitely quite an interesting trend to look at there. 
And again, in terms of the, the counter trend and trend and counter trend, there's the interesting dynamic of what's going on with sort of globalization on the one hand and then also nationalization on the other hand. So we've kind of seen, a, and I know we've spoken about this before, a new dynamic, a new sort of aligning of geopolitical alliances across borders. But we also see very strong trends towards stronger nationalization within borders. And this is because the general consciousness of humanity right now is shifting from a consciousness of abundance towards a consciousness of scarcity. And I know that sounds quite sort of altruistic, but it's, it's quite practical too. Nationalist movements tend to rise when there is a thinking among people that the pie is not going to grow. The proverbial real economy pie is not going to grow. It needs to be cut up into more pieces, in which case you don't want immigrants to come into your national borders if you believe you're going to have to share. If you believe immigration and global trade increase the general wealth, increase economic growth, you're much more open to globalist thinking. When that mindset shifts to scarcity and to sharing, suddenly people become more selfish and less likely to, to share and to help people across borders. So that's been an interesting thing to look at over there and that shift towards scarcity thinking is also being driven we can tie it all the way back to real resource scarcity again and the big conversations around things like climate change and the the rumors and the i like to say the sort of rumors of, of war but more like ecological war that are filtering into people's consciousness that we that are coming from political powers from international bodies again saying you're going to have to start making compromises rumors of things like climate lockdowns and rumors of things like bans on eating meat and rumors of things like you know personal carbon credit scores that will limit your ability to travel to commute or even to have children or to own pets are all permeating into a scarcity mindset and a scarcity consciousness that makes people become more selfish. And I think that's a narrative that's worth interrogating and attacking, this sort of subtext that says that we have to choose between sustainability and growth because a choice for sustainability without growth requires a world of more conflict. Again, a fighting over a small pie, the only pie that is in existence right now rather than having conversations about how we can have sustainable growth and grow that pie so we don't have to worry about conflict because that's the catch the people that are selling the sort of degrowth agenda don't necessarily articulate the cost is that we're going to have to deal with more conflict and more competition if we don't find ways to have growth as well as trying to focus on sustainability both i think are quite important so, so hopefully those sort of big trends and counter trends make a bit of sense and give you a bit of context into the, the way that I look at the world right now. And you already addressed the political economy, you addressed the societal part of the equation. Uh, how about the technological one? We are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution and we are also witnessing a systemic competition between uh, two uh, main rivals, the United States and China. Um, do you think that this time we are going to witness a situation with two winners coming out of the industrial revolution? Because we know from the past that each of the last uh, industrial revolutions were shaped by such great power competition and was won by one of the competitors, basically uh, resulting uh, in a situation that enabled this competitor to become also a global power. Uh, last time in the 70s, this was the case with the United States, uh, which definitely won uh, this race against the Soviet Union. And previously, the Great Britain became that great and that global, also thanks 
to the industrial revolutions. And it was at the core of these industrial revolutions always uh, about uh, the um, search for innovative or new uh, ways of uh, of, uh, of uh, using energy. The last time, nuclear energy. Previously, as we know, electricity and so on and so forth. Now, it's about decarbonization. We are moving towards greening the global economy. So, how do you uh, see and uh, assess the trends within this, uh, you know, major area of uh, of um, actually of transition and of uh, transformation? Yeah, exactly. So I think the first thing to sort of note when it comes to technology is that technology is, is still like a human sort of tool that we've essentially developed and that it can be used to enforce or to reinforce any sort of worldview or any sort of political agenda. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad. But the other thing to note with technology is that technology is sort of counterbalanced with regulation and you have to get the recipe right. If you under-regulate exponential sort of technologies like we're dealing with right now, you can inadvertently walk your nation and your country into quite extreme disaster. At the, sa at the same time, if you over-regulate technology, you essentially take yourself out of the race. And that's really what the European Union has been doing. I think a lot of global observers of the world of technology do seem to think that Europe has taken the role of regulator rather than the role of innovator. And as such, they've slowed themselves down to a point that they will not be able to compete with the horses in the race that are actually making a, a real bid for winning this race, as, as I've said. And the stakes in winning this technology race right now are quite huge because the technologies we're dealing with right now are not democratizing technologies like the technologies that we saw coming out of the 1980s, 1990s, and around about up until the 2008 financial crisis. Those new digitizing technologies were about distributing and democratizing access to technology. It was about putting devices like cell phones and computers and internet connections into individuals' hands like mine and yours. I mean, I'm old enough to remember growing up without any of those things. And that changed the world, it globalized the world, it opened up a lot of opportunity, it created a whole new class of workers, that whole sort of knowledge worker class. But what we've seen happen since around about 2008, and it's quite coincidental or not, depending on how you feel about macro trends, that the sort of pivot point in when technology went from being democratizing to being centralizing once again happened very similar to around about the same time the 2008 financial crisis happened. The same time people started to question things like democracy and started to question things like globalization and to question things like free market neoliberal economics. We also started to change our relationship with technology. And since then, we've seen the rise of the major tech titans. And what most of them have done have stopped selling us devices and stopped selling us software and started renting them to us. Again, it comes back to that trend of you going to own nothing, someone else will, and you will rent an access to that service. So what we've seen then is actually a clawing back of technology into fewer and fewer hands as big centralized platforms, big companies essentially become digital landlords and start renting us the ability to connect with each other. This has given us vast efficiencies, much like globalization does for trade, but at the same time, it has reduced our individual resilience to shocks in the technological world, and also essentially given us sort of to the mercy of these companies that have in effect almost become as big, in fact, in reality, have become as big powers in terms of both the economy and in terms of actual power as many nation states are. 
And what we've seen that the winners there are essentially like winner takes all type businesses. And the trajectory, the likely probable tra trajectory, bearing in mind it's not inevitable, the likely probable trajectory of things like artificial intelligence that could one day lead to super intelligence or something that futurists speak about quite a lot is a winner takes all solution. It's a, it's a, it's a totalizing type of technology where he who has the most data has to have all the data to drive these super powerful systems. It doesn't make sense to fragment them too much. That's the sort of trajectory that we are on. And the players that are doing quite well there either tend to be players that have come out of China in particular or that have come out of America. So America has at the moment a bit more regulation in some ways than China, coming back to the point of regulation being sort of counterpoint to technology. But in other ways, they have less regulation in that there's a bit more separation of state and business in the United States. There's a bit less separation of state and business in China, as we can see with what happened to things like Jack Ma, when the, the sort of the government can sort of take your business away at will. You know, there's a bit more interference there. But that can actually accelerate the trajectory of technology there if government is putting it's if it's pulling in the same directory direction as the people that are actually building the systems. So I can't give a firm view to say which sort of model is going to win, but I will put a view out there and say that if America starts to regulate more, if America follows Europeans or the European regulatory model, they will likely lose the race. If America realizes that America's strength has always been not playing the regulatory game and letting business run for itself, America will have a better chance of that sort of Western worldview of technology winning the game. Now, I'm also not going to give a view whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because the Wild West is also a bit of a state of nature. So we kind of have a sort of choice ahead of us where we can either, like Peter Thiel speaks about this too, there's sort of three doors when it comes to technology. You've really got the sort of like the sort of venture communism, totalizing, bright eyes, sort of surveillance state where state and technology are all together that comes out of the sort of, the sort of Chinese Communist Party kind of where, where it seems to be pointing the direction they want to be in. We've got kind of Europe's sort of degrowth, highly regulated view of technology of the world, which I don't think is a winning view when you look at the how aggressive the other the other views are. And the other one being a much more sort of a Western sort of corporate running the world program, which is quite scary if you are someone that has become accustomed to you know enjoying the benefits of a state that gives you financial and physical protection which is which is what our sort of nation state compromise and pact has always been about so i think we, before we start to pick winners we should also kind of understand what each of the worldviews when it comes to technology and its confluence with government really mean for us as as citizens but i would say that either your American tech giants, which we started seeing turning into global powers. If you're looking at their battles with both India and, and Australia, you can start to see they're essentially acting extrajudicially. They, they consider themselves to be borderless sort of nations of cyberspace versus the much more tethered to a more 4D political sort of holistic game that China seems to be playing where they are trying to control all the layers of the stack, the medium, the message, the muscle, and, and of course, everything else that goes with that. So they, they're trying to play a game where one entity or one worldview can control both the real and the virtual world. America at the moment just seems to sort of split those two apart, where some people control the world of Caesar, the real world, other ones control the, the world of cyberspace. How close they pull together, we'll, we have yet to see. But the Biden administration is, is looking at a bit more of reining that in and trying to have a bit more control over 
the technological world than perhaps the previous administration was interested in doing. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that uh, a future is possible where you actually will end up with two uh, completely separate systems, two alternative systems which will have more or less um, uh, separate uh, networks. Uh, one, so based on what you have described, mm. might happen in the future. So basically one system that is very much uh, still westernized or US-led uh, together with uh, like-minded partners or countries and then again another one which is uh, built on uh, china's model and uh, china is not the only one that considers these kind of technologies that you've described as uh, helpful to establish facilitate uh, or strengthen the state control over their own population and this model uh, has been now winning uh, some hearts and minds among uh, state heads and uh, leaders uh, everywhere in Very effective. <laughs> Latin America, in Africa, or even in Asia. So uh, it's appealing to, a, to, a, to an extent. Do you think it's possible we might end uh, with something like two alternative worlds, two alternative systems? Also, given that uh, the technological breakthroughs uh, will be decisive, for the future system competition and let's say uh, both decide that uh, uh, direct confrontation will be too costly so let's split uh, you know let's go separate ways let's split let's uh, basically uh, decouple in a sense uh, which uh, would be in a mutual interest i'm just outlining a, a kind of future scenario that I also would not exclude as uh, unrealistic. From my perspective, I think we're going to end up with more than two different worldviews. So I think that some some states, but they have to be strong states. Unless you are a strong state that has both real world and the ability to sort of control your virtual world, we have to sort of see that sort of power game as being a, a board with many different layers. Only a strong state has the ability to control all those different layers, to control the, the medium, to control the real world, to control physical force, to control monetary systems. So there are actually very few states across the world that have the ability to do that. I think China is one. I think America could do that if they choose to, but I don't think the will is there to imply that much sort of control over the population, not given the sort of the mindset of people that live in, the, in that part of the world and what their sort of history is politically and where they are in terms of the maturity of their democracy. But states that are able to control those stacks have a huge incentive to do it. In fact, they don't just have an incentive, they don't really have a choice at this point in time because their competitor is not actually another nation state when it comes to that sort of layers of control. It's actually what's going on in the world of borderless private networks. And here I'm talking about something I haven't mentioned before, not the big corporations that are de facto states. I mean, if you're talking about a Google or an Amazon, I would consider them to be a de facto nation state in their own way. Maybe they don't have control over geographic territory, but they certainly do have control over virtual territory. They are landlords of those platforms, like I defined. You pay tribute to use them to your virtual king over there. But there are another sort of layers of competition that are being built in the decentralized block net side of the world, which is borderless and permissionless. It is only really available to people that are technologically savvy enough to understand how these systems work, but they have accrued enough business interests, enough finance, and enough clever people 
that are actually able to live as being de facto non-citizens or, or complete free agents of the sort of virtual realm. So that is becoming a competitor for weaker states. And weaker states have to be concerned about this. Because if you're unable to collect taxes, if you're unable to control the value of your currency, which is again a privilege only available to the bigger nations and the bigger currencies in the world. You are competing against these borderless currency systems whether you like it or not and what borderless currency systems do is as they start building on governance layers and start getting involved with things that more than just cryptocurrencies they essentially become a sort of opportunity that taxes end up becoming voluntary for your citizens and that of course can accelerate social contract breakdown if i was in a developing market like i am living in south africa this is something that, that concerns me greatly because fragile states will be competing with borderless virtual governance and currency systems. So I see a world that is going to become more fragmented. The nation states that can control their virtual realms and their physical realms, like the Chinese and India too, is also building the India stack, which is very interesting to look at. There are many nations that are looking at these things, will probably have sort of separate sort of balkanized sort of digital realms, much like we currently have sort of balkanized and regionalized alliances in our geographic world. The same thing is going to happen when it comes to digital economies as they become more important. But around that, there is going to be sort of these modes of chaos where people are running around, trading with each other, making money, essentially outside of any sort of rule of law. So I kind of see a quite a, it's a, it's a different sort of bipolar world, a world of both extreme control and a world of extreme anarchy basically living at the same time and that's that's the big conflict that we're going to see playing out against the, the course of really the century and what where the end game there is where the sort of anarchy wins against control and I'm not even sure that, that either of those worldviews are going to be particularly comfortable for many people listening to this call because they're both very extreme worlds worlds of extreme control or, or worlds essentially of extreme breakdown of control again there's always when it comes to trends these sort of polar opposite plays but that's that's essentially what's going to happen it's probably going to be a sort of a, a bit of a, a weird state of nature there I almost see it in terms of being a, a sort, sort of sort of neo feudalism much like what happened in the middle ages but I was on the terrestrial layer where you had sort of, you know your your feudal kingdoms within the wall but then you also had the barbarians outside the wall and essentially that same dynamic is going to play out in a much more digitized sort of society going forward and we'll have to go through that period of sort of extreme division before we find a new equilibrium as society. And that will be our next reformation, whatever our society is going to go through first. But I do predict that we're going to have to go through a new dark age, as my other fellow futurist, Dr. Ian Pearson, likes to talk about. Not quite the same as the Middle Ages. We're going to have to work through that before we can build what our new society is going to be. And as a, I suppose, quite scary words, but I don't, I don't really see that there's any other way around this due to the extremities that happen with what's going on with technology, and they allow both extreme control and extreme breakdown of control at the same time. It reminds me of a quote by Dostoevsky who once said in one of his books, uh, you have to reach the bottom before it gets better. So basically it has to get uh, really, really bad before you can start improving. So speaking of which, uh, what would be the ultimate worst scenario in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, you know, dark ages based on technological yeah. breakthroughs that turn out to be actually um, 
negative for humanity, for uh, states and for uh, international, uh, for the international community? Is it this kind of uh, desire to connect the human to a computer as we are observing right now? Is it uh, a kind of super intelligent computer without the human component? Um, you mentioned also the, you know, the bifurcation of uh, global order on the one side, chaos on the other side, you know, desire for more stability. And uh, where does it go? I mean, what are what would be, or let's summarize it that way. What would be the three, probably, uh, you know, per, your personal three picks? Uh, on uh, trends or signals that would keep you awake in the night. I think my end game that scares me the most is that either total chaos or total control win, that they don't end up both basically existing in parallel. Because if they don't exist in parallel, we won't be able to find the bridges to build across them again. Because that's what we have to sort of get through. Because we've seen these very divergent worldviews of the crazy sovereign individuals, like the Bitcoin anarchists that want to like eat steak and like, you know, have fun staying poor. They don't sound like great people to share a planet with. On the other hand, you've got extreme control that's coming from your very controlled, very surveilled social credit score based based systems. And they're both going to materialize. There's so much stakes behind them. I hope that they'll be able to live in parallel for a while and that the saner voices will come about and be able to build bridges between the two of them. We'll come up with a new social contract that, that takes the best of both worlds going forward. Because generally, binary situations like that leave a lot of people behind. So I'm hoping we're going to be able to build bridges. I'd say a nightmare for me would be either of those worldviews becoming ubiquitous. So I kind of I kind of hope there is going to be a bit of a balance of power there. I think homogeneity in general scares me quite a lot due to the power of the technologies that we have right now. A one world order governed with a single social credit score system tied to humanity at large, not just to a particular nation state, would I think be too much power and too much temptation in any sort of governance system. It puts just too much control into too few hands. I think that's what that's what really scares me. And in terms of the sort of trends that we're looking at, I mean, that's exactly what's happening. I think that the, the two things we can look at there that are coming at it from different angles, but they both scare me just as much, is sort of the, the way that the governments are rolling up control of economies on the one hand, and the other hand, how corporations are Get being given powers to govern over citizens. I think that we need to also make sure we are separating power between business and governance. I think it is a very dangerous situation we're getting into where the referee who should be the government is starting to actually put on a t-shirt and start kicking the ball when it comes to the world of commerce, manipulating money supplies, investing in businesses, taking shares in startups. You know, these sorts of things do scare me quite a lot because it fudges the lines and makes it more likely that a single world order will come into being if we don't have dynamic tension. At the same time, I'm very concerned about big corporations who have de facto powers of unelected states that have essentially been handed to them both by states and by citizens. So I think what I'm quite frightened of when we look at both of those things is how easily people have given up their own individual autonomy and their own individual responsibility to higher powers on the houses of corporate or the houses of state. I think that we are a spoiled generation. As I was talking about earlier, we're so used to the curve of humanity going up and to the right. We think we deserve to have greater wealth and greater prosperity without 
taking responsibility for any of that at all. We've severed sort of skin in the game. We've severed risk and reward. We try to hand over all risk to someone else and, and we still expect to get our reward. I think that we have become lazy citizens, that we do not call our political leaders to account, and then we become lazy consumers, that we just click on terms and conditions and we don't call corporations that we use and allow to abuse us to account. So I think that's quite a, a scary trend, the lack of agency that I see particularly among people in my generation and how absolutely they believe, many of my friends, many of the people that I deal with, that it's someone else's problem and that it's someone else's responsibility and that we're entitled to things like democracy and welfare payments from our state, but we don't have any reciprocal responsibility to go with that. So that's sort of more social trend, but I think it cuts across a lot of the things that we're talking about because when we start talking about governance, how it's going to unfold, particularly as t these technologies are based on scale and based on totalizing type systems, we don't understand that power given up is very unlikely to be returned to us. And we're too quick to give away our agency in exchange for you know, greater welfare entitlements, or greater ease of use, you know, greater efficiencies. We don't think of the fact that it's a one-way street that doesn't unroll as easily as it rolls up. And I think a sort of a fearful and lazy population is a very dangerous place to be when the stakes in the sort of game that I've been hopefully trying to outline for us today are just so high and we do require more people pulling in different directions, keeping those various doors open just a little bit in order to make sure that we still have choices when we get a bit further down the road and we see what we're going to get when we get what we've been asking for. Because we all want to have, you know, more luxury. We all want the dream of the, you know, the fully automated luxury communism world that we talk about. But if we actually get what we what we're asking for by through our passivity we might be a bit less sort of happy about that so i think that that whole sort of deferring of agency trend is something that concerns me quite a lot also the the, the mixing up of, of corporate brand church state you sort of blurring those various different centers of power is something that that concerns me a little bit and i suppose also the trend of gross nationalization as much as i've spoken quite a lot about sort of the, the one world sort of agenda being something that scares me quite a lot because it gives no room for choice and it will result in more people being unhappy than not at the same time, I think that selfish nationalism, which I spoke about a little bit further, is counterintuitive to actually building a world of, of more choice and more divergent rather than more convergent features going ahead. So we have to guard against selfishness and against scarcity too, if we want to look ahead and hopefully keep that doors and windows of opportunity a little bit, a little bit open, which is the entire thesis of the books that we try to put together, that we really need more choices, not more convergence on a single sort of view of what the future should and could be. Perhaps I might uh, only add a sentence to, to this uh, to this very, very nice overview that you uh, actually presented. And that is that uh, what I see as a really major difference uh, from the last 30 years is the fact that now we are living in, for the very first time in human history, in a global capitalist system. So more or less the majority of all states have introduced, accepted a kind of capitalist system, of course, with various characteristics, but uh, this is, of course, a very new world, a quite new world. And 
we don't know how to deal with it. I think that the next generations, uh, specifically the new generations that have never experienced something different, uh, will be struggling to to deal with it in intellectual terms once the systems begins we experience crisis. And uh, second element of it is that uh, the um, uh, Cold War uh, was won 30 years ago by one competitor, the other one imploded and disappeared on the map of global effects. Mm -hmm. but, but the ideologies behind it uh, were not competed. They spread and they uh, diverged and they are still alive and kicking. And this, of course, is a major issue now, 30 years later, because it creates, uh, it creates certain narratives, it creates certain, certain approaches, it feeds certain approaches to um, global affairs and to actually to uh, real life problems that are, in my view, absolutely, absolutely dangerous. And you mentioned, for instance, on the side of uh, nations, uh, nationalism, for instance, but another one will be, of uh, course, Marxism and neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism. It's a certain, yes. definitely, a, which is now shaping um, the view of many new generations. They have never actually dealt with a real life, a real life political system uh, being shaped by it. So I think this will also play a major role. Uh, in the next decades, uh, and the way how this global capitalist system will be uh, will be managing crisis because they will be coming. We don't yeah. without them. Right. So much for the end of history, right? The end of, that end of history didn't quite play out. But I think it's also important to note that the sort of flavor of capitalism that we have right now is not to be confused with, with free markets ideology, which is quite a different thing. Because as I've pointed out many times before, communist countries can be capitalist too. I mean, this is what China has built itself on. So we have this weird sort of hybrid that is actually almost exactly the same. And in fact, there was a, there were a couple of thinkers, I forget who right now, that said that the way that our sort of multi-party democracy has played out, it's actually ended up with the fact that Western so-called capitalist governments have actually become more successful at delivering communism than communist governments have. That in essence, the capitalist democracy compromise has, has actually delivered a greater roll up of real resource and wealth into the state's hand for redistribution than what the pure communist countries were able to do. So what we've ended up with is a world whether it's called capitalist or communist, we essentially have governments in both China and America that are essentially run as businesses, but for the benefits of the few. So we kind of have the worst of both worlds. We have the, the inequalities of capitalism, but we also have the inefficiencies of, of, of communism because we don't actually have free markets in either of those places. We have different flavors of state control. What they have in common is really, really big governments that are controlling larger and larger sectors of our of both our economics and of our societies. And I think that's the line that we're starting to see getting crossed in that in Western nations across the world, we're starting to see crackdowns on civil liberties like freedom of speech, which I think is always the big bellwether into where things are turning. That's definitely not sort of freedom of speech and freedom freedom to trade are generally the two sort of big freedoms to, to watch. And without those, uh, the sort of the brand of capitalism we have today is, is 
capitalism only in the sense that uh, that very few hands get to get very very rich at the expense of really everyone else but at the same time everyone else is placated both the west and the east right now with more and more generous welfare entitlements that can only be funded by just increasing those patterns of inequality and capitalism in the side of the state which is quite an interesting irony so we're going to have to figure our way out of this this, this bastard compromise between the two worldviews that we found ourselves in that has become quite a homogenous problem across vast swaths of the world right now yes now you are based in south africa and i really want to uh, actually um finish our initial talk with uh, with a more optimistic yeah. picture about the future. So I was thinking maybe the role uh, that Africa uh, can play in this uh, transformational uh, processes and in the global power competition will be a positive one. And that might be the century that will finally write an optimistic story for Africa, for the African continent. Uh, what is your take on that? Uh, do we have reasons to be optimistic about uh, about Africa? What would be the roles of South Africa? Uh, I mean, being uh, one of uh, the main regional actors, being also part of uh, um, significant regional uh, formats and uh, institutions. What is your take? And I hope, I really want to hope that uh, you can present also some some ideas and uh, some some assessment that might give us uh, uh, reasons for optimism, so that we don't end with a dark picture, really a picture of humanity, society, economics, and technology. Well, as I said with my writing partner, Ronit Kapalda, so I do quite a lot of this sort of writing, these sort of essays about the future of Africa with, like, we, we've, we've really come to the conclusion that, that Africa is going to determine largely the success of the geopolitical contract that's going to fold out across the world. We've kind of got two choices as a continent. We can either be the sort of piggy in the middle and go through like a new program of sort of like digital colonization going forward, or we can end up being kingmakers by, by being quite strategic about which worldviews we are partnering with and taking more and more of a view in terms of our own terms. In order to do that, we need to harness both our greatest strength and our greatest weakness, which tend to be the same thing. And that would be the diversity of the continent because Africa is not a place. It's definitely a very diverse, very culturally rich part of the world. And we need to harness that diversity to make sure we're getting those different viewpoints all on the table. And particularly, I'm talking about making sure that the African Union is, is negotiating as a block so that Africa's voice is heard and not divided and conquered, but rather there's sort of economic competition on the, on the continent, but there's more cooperation when it comes to being very strategic from a geopolitical point of view. This can be done. Unfortunately, my country, South Africa, is probably one of the, the greater offenders there, as you might have noticed if you had watched the sort of the brawl that broke out in the African Union Parliament the other day. That's kind of our South African fault. We won't talk about that. I think we're quite optimistic that the African Union, they're good people across the continent that want to make it work and I think that there are reasons to be hopeful that Africa could find some sort of a continental consensus. Africa knows it does not want to be exploited again by global powers and Africa is starting to realize that it has a seat at the table just simply because of its other both good point and bad point and that is the youth of the continent so there again a young youthful continent full of huge diversity and once again fantastic ideas if you come to africa and you talk to the young people you cannot hope you cannot 
but be optimistic about the future of the continent. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of young people that have given up on their elderly political leaders. The fact that we've got some of the biggest gap between the average age of the average voter and the average age of the average politician is not lost on the youthful African continent. Young people across Africa have very little faith in politics, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because they have a whole lot of faith in themselves and they're more likely to start businesses and start movements and to start social projects with or without sort of permission from the elders. So I think there's reasons to be hopeful that, that young Africans are going to do things for themselves with or without permission. But the, the challenge there, of course, is, is getting leadership to align with the population itself because otherwise an unemployed, unhappy young continent can also once again be a source of, of huge disgrace and huge disaster. So we have a choice. We have all the cards are stacked in Africa's favor. I actually had a conversation about this last week, that the ball is really sort of in our court and it's, it's ours to lose. And there's a lot of reasons why things could go right, but I don't think we should com be complacent about it because things could unravel very, very quickly too. If, if African countries do not work together, to negotiate with the rest of the world. There's a problem there. If African leaders do not respect their young people who have the talent, the ideas, the education, and the drive to fix things, again, we're going to have problems, but there is no reason why we can't do that, logically speaking. So I think I think the more of these conversations we have, it just remind people that there's a lot of agency that needs to be taken advantage of here. This is not the time to be complacent. Then we can get a lot more optimistic about where the future is headed. So if Africa plays kingmaker rather than piggy in the middle, I think we could have a much more exciting, a much more of a wild card play out across the rest of the century. Because certainly, as you said, time that the African vision of humanity gets a chance to get played out. We've, we've played the, the Asian game, we've played the American and the European game, and perhaps we're ready for a bit of a new game right now. That sounds quite promising. So let me finish uh, this uh, highly interesting digital talk uh, with a quote by Wells, who once said, all the past is but the beginning of a beginning. If that's the case, what is the future to you? The future is always happening. The future is never going to arrive. And I think it's always got to, we've always got to say, because I am a trained futurist, but it's not the future. There's futures ahead of us. And don't let anyone lie to you and say that there is one future ahead. The future should always be opening up. It should never be closing down. And I think that's also, that's also kind of the, the joke that I like to say, because I'm a trained economist and I'm also a trained futurist. And futurists don't predict the future. Economists do that. That's the difference between foresight and... <laughs> and forecasting right the one is the one is divergent the other is convergent so I, I like to think that I have a bit of a, a view of both things but I definitely think right now at this point in time we need the futurist view of opening up to multiple futures we need more divergence in our thinking convergence is the most dangerous thing we can do at this point in time given the power of technology and given our current sort of economic and geopolitical balance of power I think that was the perfect uh, end of a wonderful digital conversation. Uh, this has been Bronwyn Williams, co-author of The Future Starts Now. Please buy the book. You can find her also on Twitter. She's very active and responsive. And I'm really grateful uh, for uh, having you as my guest today. And I wish you all the best for all future endeavors. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you.